Romans chapter 2, as we continue our study through Paul's letter to the Roman church. Before I read this, let me just give a very brief reminder of where we've been in this letter. In the first 15 verses of Romans chapter 1, Paul is introducing himself to a congregation that he did not plant, he had never attended, and he expressed his desire to come and preach the gospel to them. He said in verse 15 that he was eager to do so, to preach the gospel there in Rome because, he says in verses 16 and 17, which are somewhat of theme, the theme verses for this entire letter, he's not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And then this very important phrase, verse 17, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Key terms. Faith and righteousness. And when he talks about the righteousness of God, remember then in verse 18 of chapter 1 and running all the way through chapter 3, verse 20, he's establishing the fact that no one is righteous. That no one has the righteousness they need to be right with God. That we are all condemned sinners. And in chapter 1, verse 18, through the end of chapter 1 uh, there, verse 32, he, he talks about gen, uh, humanity generally, what the Jew might refer to as the Gentiles, the nations, and the fact that they knew God in creation but did not want God, and therefore they suppressed the truth about God in their own sin, and they turned to idols And they worshiped and served the creature rather than creator. They did not give honor to God or glorify God or thank God or worship God. They wanted the stuff he made and therefore he gives them over in his righteous wrath to what they want, which is not him. And that progresses into all kinds of sins and immorality until in verse 28 of chapter 1, they're given over to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done and they are filled with with all manner of unrighteousness. And then in chapter 2 though, and as we have studied really through the first 16 verses of that chapter, Paul turns his attention to the one who would have been applauding his condemnation of everyone else. They saw the sins in others, but not themselves. These were self-righteous, condemning, judgmental Perhaps professing Christians, but were not true Christians. Verse 4, they were, verse 4 and 5, clearly storing up wrath for themselves on the day of God's righteous judgment. So they were not true believers. And they thought their way to heaven was by keeping the law. And so he had to remind them of God's righteous judgment. That unless they kept the entire law and did it perfectly and consistently, they would be judged just like those they were standing in judgment against. You had to remind them of the details of God's judgment, and that's really what we looked at last week. And we'll pick up in verse 17 here, and we'll read through the end of the chapter. He says, but if you call yourself a Jew 
and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law. And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blaspheme among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Let's pause and ask God's blessing on the word preached this morning. Father, we bow before you now in our hearts and minds and before your holy word, which we have just read. And we ask that your spirit would grant us understanding of what he intended when he breathed it out through Paul and what he would want us to see and know and believe. Help me now to teach and to exhort with power and freedom and love. And I ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. The Romans 2 person thought he was right with God, but for all the wrong reasons. He thought he was right with God, but for all the wrong reasons. He had a false sense of salvation security. And if you think about it, that can be a terrifying thought. That what the scriptures clearly teach in places like Romans chapter 2 is that someone can think they're on their way to the kingdom and not be. This was a large portion of the Jewish people that Paul is addressing here, especially those Jewish leaders, the same ones that are probably now in and around the Christian church, to some degree perhaps have acknowledged Jesus as the promised Messiah, and yet they failed to comprehend the gospel truth and what it means to be saved by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. 
And it's the same kind of person that was disrupting the churches throughout Galatia that Paul was writing to in our letter to the Galatians. They have a false sense of salvation security. They are trusting in their salvation based on all the wrong reasons. And so, of course, we want to analyze verses like this to make sure that we are trusting in, well, the person and work of Jesus alone for salvation because that's where Paul is headed. That's what he's proclaiming. What they believed or how they believed they were right with God is really summarized in verse 17. He says, but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent. This is really what they're trusting in to be saved before God, to be saved on the judgment day, to be justified. Well, the fact, first of all, that they were Jews. And so what we see in Romans chapter 2 now very clearly is that Paul is going to hone in now on the Jewish people and especially those same kinds of people he's confronting in his ministry and the same kinds of Jews that Jesus is confronting in his ministry that we looked at last week. He's honing in on them because they're relying on the fact that they're Jews. And even though we won't get much into it this week, beginning there in verse 25 and running through the end of the chapter, uh, they, they were trusting largely in circumcision, which of course was the sign of the covenant that God made with Abraham. Way back in Genesis 17, we'll look at it more in detail next week. But because of that sign of the covenant that they possessed and practiced, they knew they were Jews, they were descendants of Abraham, and they were relying on that largely. For the fact that even though God may judge the nations righteously for their sin, they, of course, won't be judged because, after all, we are, we are Jews. They had a false sense of security in that. Next week, we'll learn what is a true Jew. Did you know if you're a Christian, Paul's going to make it very clear in chapter 2 and chapter 4 that you are, by faith now, a descendant of Abraham spiritually. It's powerful and it's helpful because it means the Old Testament then opens up to you. That's why you can be in trouble and plead the cry of Isaiah, fear not for, the, for God is with you, be not dismayed for he is your God, etc. Even though that was directed just to the Jews. Well, why can a Christian appropriate that promise? Well, because spiritually, you've been born now again into the family of Abraham by faith, but I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm already excited about next week's message. We've got to stay here, primarily verses 17 through 24. They believed that they were Jews. They had the sign of the covenant. They boasted in God. I'm skipping over purposely They're relying on the law because I want to hone in on that. And they boasted in God. Could have a number of meanings behind that, but the reality is they boasted in the fact that they knew the true God. As opposed to the nations, of course, who had their false gods. The silly Gentiles who had idols that they made, even though many of the Jews conveniently forgot their own history. 
and how they didn't even get out of the 40 years of wilderness wandering before they made a golden calf and worshipped it themselves. They themselves had become idolaters throughout their entire history, and yet they boasted in the fact that they knew and worshipped the one true God. And then Paul makes this comment in verse 17 that's very telling. He says they're relying on the law. You call yourself a Jew, and notice that phrase, you rely on the law. That word rely is interesting. It means to find well-being or inner security in something. To find rest, comfort, and support in something. They found their salvation security in the law. Not on the fact that the law taught them to look to Jesus Christ, because it does. So that would be a right way to rely on the law for salvation security, what it teaches you about faith in Christ. But they relied on it in the wrong ways. As we learned last week, they found on the one hand that they believed that the law was given to them as a means to become right and stay right with God. So they were trusting in their ability to, to keep the law and do enough of the law so that they would be right with God and God would like them and care for them and give them eternal life. They understood that looking back at the law in Genesis 3, they saw the rift that was created between God and human beings when mankind fell into sin. And now human beings are separated from God. They understood this. But God chose them out as his people and gave to them his law. And that law, that Torah, that instruction, they believe was given to them as a bridge that would connect them to God or perhaps even a ladder that they could keep the law and be righteous enough to work their way up to God. They relied on the keeping of the law to be saved. And the problem is, as we've already seen, when we get to chapter 3, verse 20, the big problem with that is Paul says, by the works of the law, or by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. That's an, that's an important statement. Through the law comes what? The knowledge of sin. In other words, first and foremost for sinful people, the law is given. And yes, it expresses what is righteous. And yes, God intends his people to do it, but not as a means to get to him. What it really exposes first and foremost is your inability to keep it. The more you understand the law and know the law and see the law, you, the more of the law-breaking you're going to see in yourself. It exposes our sin. That's the first thing it does. You can't, friends, if you come to the place in your life, I, I'll speak to those of you who are not saved. 
If you come to the point in your life where you realize you need to be, and you realize you're a sinner, what you don't want to do is start doing things to change that fact. You don't want to say, okay, I'm doing these things wrong, so God's upset with me, so what do I got to do? I got to start doing the right things, and then he won't be upset with me anymore. That's trying to be justified by the law, isn't it? That's not the right way. As a matter of fact, what Paul will say in chapter 4, and this is, a, this is an amazing gospel statement, chapter 4, verse 5, he says, to the one who does not work, He's not talking about having a job here. He's talking about working according to the law, trying to get right with God by obeying him. To the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies, listen, the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. The way to stand right with God is to come to him as an ungodly sinner in yourself, you see. You don't clean yourself up a little bit and then present yourself to God. You come before God as you are. And the, what Paul is teaching in the first three chapters is the way you are is an unrighteous, ungodly sinner. And then you believe in Jesus. And as you trust in him, then God declares you righteous, you see. Somebody asks you, what do I do in order to be saved? And, on, and one answer to that question is absolutely nothing. Nothing. You look to Jesus Christ. You trust in Him. Rely upon everything He has done, you see, to save you. In Romans chapter 1 through 3, what we're seeing and what we're coming to understand is that we need to be saved by God, you see. That if we were going to be saved, he had to do everything. And friends, has to do everything for us. They were relying on the law. And therefore, they didn't have the righteousness God requires and the salvation that he gives. But it goes further than that, as Paul explains in the beginning of verse 18, that they were trusting in law, not just their keeping of the law, but the very fact that they possessed the law and knew it. They were trusting in the fact that they had Bible knowledge and good theology. Look at verse 18. You boast in God and know his will and improve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law. That Greek word instructed is where we get our English word catechism. Anybody in here been catechized growing up? Systematically catechized, you were taught like, what is the chief end of man? Well, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's systematic instruction, which is wonderful, by the way. And I believe in it, and it's good to do this with children. It's why we incorporate it, wove it into our 
our Awana program because this is what they, this is what children need to be catechized and instructed from the law. But they were trusting in the fact that they know his will and approve what is excellent and therefore because they've been instructed from the law they can look out at the lost world and see how bad it is and see what they're doing wrong. Verse 20, second half, it says you're having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. In other words, I might say it this way. They had a great doctrinal statement. This is the person who may be saying something to the effect of, I'm right with God because I'm right. And I know what biblical truth is, and I know my Bible, and I have right doctrine, and therefore, because of that, I am right with God. If there is anything in these first three chapters that I think Calvary Bible Church needs to be aware of, it's this. Our circles. Because we teach the Bible. We preach the Bible. We build our lives on the Bible. We believe in good theology. We believe in pursuing truth from Scripture. But we can't be trusting in that for our salvation, friends. We weren't to be finding salvation security in our knowledge about God or our knowledge of Scripture. I'm so thankful for my fundamentalist background. I can make fun of fundamentalists because I was one. (laughs) You're taught from the time that you're a child that this is the authoritative Word of God. And you don't question it. Wonderful, love that that it's right, that it's good, that it's true. You're taught you must defend it against all error and pursue theological integrity in every area. I love it. I I can see my background now and even after being saved and where God chose to send me to seminary, Bob Jones Seminary, for two and a half years being in that environment of fundamentalism of this is the word of God and we cling to it and we fight for it and we don't turn from it. I see now God's wisdom in bringing me up in a culture like that. Because yes, it is always my tendency to lean to the right and never to the left. I like that, to believe what's true, but there's a lot of danger in these circles of people who think they're right with God because they're right doctrinally. And you meet some of the people in these circles and there isn't, You couldn't detect one ounce of the fruit of the Spirit coming from them if you followed them 24 hours a day and seven days a week. But they're right in what they profess and what they preach. It's a danger to equate right doctrine with a right relationship with God. To think you're okay because you're in the right circles of Christians. I mean, of course... And the church I grew up in, that was the only church in the entire city that I grew up in. Not literally, but in their minds. A church of 30-something people. And no one else in the city was right. Boy, that's dangerous. 
There's a danger for all of us in equating Christian maturity with how much we know. In other words, the more you know about the Bible and the more theology you have, the more mature you are, you see. You're like these people. You're the teachers of infants, right? You look at everybody else and how they need to be instructed from you. Christian maturity does not equal biblical knowledge. Did you know that God's people, in many places for centuries, individuals never had an entire Bible in their possession or Bible colleges or seminaries. Some of God's people in places and times of history and around the world were illiterate. The only hearing of the Bible that they had was gathering maybe on a Sunday morning with God's people and the pastor, the leader would have it and read it to them. They were far from theological experts. Did you know there are Christians and yet they were mature and godly and bearing the fruit of the Spirit? How could that be? You know, there are Christians in, even in recent history, I think of my history with, for four years with Slavic Gospel Association and the churches in Russia when, when the Soviet Union collapsed and believers from the U.S. could go into there and um, minister and do different things. They found that they had, their, they had the Bible to a degree and they had biblical knowledge and I think the core of the gospel was there, but they were not steeped in theology. They didn't have time to be steeped in theology because they were being persecuted. And one of the problems that developed as American pastors would go into places like that would be this air of superiority as though because we know everything we do, here we are to lecture you. And in reality, any Christian that's endured extreme suffering through the form of persecution without biblical, real, like, deep biblical theology and understanding, man, those of us with more theological understanding would be sitting, we should sit at their feet, you see, and listen to them and let them teach us. Because we've come to the place where we think or we're confused about the fact that biblical knowledge equals maturity or a right stand with God. Now, understand, friends, please, please understand me. I think and believe and teach that Bible knowledge is important. This is why we emphasize here, read your Bibles during the week. What a gift you have. Read them during the week. Listen to good things during the week. We recommend books at times, and you can find your own books, uh, good books that help you understand the Bible more, becoming better theologians, better conclusions about what we read in the Bible. I'm promoting all of those things. I'm just saying none of those things save you. And just because you have them or you're in the right circles or attend the right church, don't think you're going to pass through the judgment. That's Paul's whole point to the Jew. Don't think that just because you're a Jew and because you have the law and you know it and you're right in these things, don't think that you're going to pass through the judgment because you've got a rude awakening awaiting you on the day of judgment. You're relying on the wrong things. All good theology 
All good Bible training, all good Bible knowledge, friends, always lands on Jesus Christ and is always just pushing towards faith in Him alone. That's what the law teaches. And they missed it. And so Paul is going out of his way to make sure they understand that. And then he'll, in detail, teach them why that's true. He'll teach them how the Old Testament taught them faith in Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation. That's the whole book of Romans. He's just unfolding this truth that they missed in all their Bible knowledge. These people in Romans chapter 2 view themselves as teachers, of course. Verses 19 and 20, he says, If you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. They viewed themselves as teachers because of the knowledge they had. Teachers of whom? Those out in the world, of course. The blind, those in darkness, the foolish, the children, those needing instruction. And Paul says, you're convinced of this. You're sure that you yourself are a teacher. Now, it's good to be a teacher, and we have the gospel, which is we offer it to people who are spiritually blind to look to Jesus who can give them spiritual sight, right? And we instruct from the law. We, we share the light of Jesus Christ and the truth and the light of righteousness from Scripture to the world. All these things are good, but you can also see here, I think, in the way Paul is phrasing this, a pride that's coming from this person. Like they're not blind and they're not in darkness and they're not foolish and they're not children who need instructing. You can just hear from them this sense of pride. And yet what he does in verses 21 to 24 is he exposes their utter hypocrisy. Look at what he says again, verse 21. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? He chose three things they would have been saying against the people in Romans 1 to draw attention to it. Paul being convinced that their answer would have to be yes on all three accounts. Perhaps these three particular things, these questions that Paul asked them, because he, he could have asked them any number of them. Maybe these three were real problems in Paul's day among the Jewish people. They were preaching against stealing, and yet in ways they were stealing themselves. They were preaching in adamant against adultery, and yet in ways they were committing adultery. They were abhorring idols, and yet they were robbing temples, which is interesting. Not a lot of record of that time of Jewish people robbing temples, but in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 25 to 26, this was actually forbidden. He says there, he says, the carved images of their gods you shall burn with fire. You shall not covet the silver or the gold that is on them or take it for yourselves, lest you be ensnared by it, for it is an abomination to the Lord your God. 
And you shall not bring an abominable thing into your house and become devoted to destruction like it. You shall utterly detest and abhor it, for it is devoted to destruction. Perhaps even in Paul's day, some of these Jews that were clearly abhorring idols were taking things from Gentile temples of value and covetousness, doing exactly what God said not to do. But the point is clear. You preach against all these things and you stand in judgment against the world and you're becoming known for what you preach, but you're not practicing what you preach. You're violating and practicing the very same sins you're calling out in others. That is hypocrisy. They were teaching the Bible but not living the Bible. There was a disconnect between their public teaching life and their private life, and that's dangerous for all of us. How we all can fall into that trap. The public persona in opposition to the private person. We all can fall into this trap. I think Jesus was pointing out the same kind of person in Matthew chapter 23, verses 1 to 3, when he said, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do, for they preach, but do not practice. Moses' seat was most likely a literal seat within the synagogue in which a rabbi would sit down and instruct a congregation, much as I'm doing now, as we would have a pulpit, and he'd instruct from the law, Moses' seat, the books of Moses telling them what they need to know and do. And yet they would not practice what they preached. That's where we get that expression. You don't practice what you preach. They don't live out their own sermons and Bible study lessons. This is not a pleasant passage for a pastor to preach. It really hits close to home. It's questions that any teacher of the Bible to any degree has to ask himself or herself. Are you living out, practicing what you preach? And isn't that maybe what James means in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2? He says, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness for we all stumble in many ways. It's a real serious thing in Scripture to take up the Word of God and teach it to other people. Well, friends, the application, though, is for everyone. As you're looking out at the sinful world and using the Bible to condemn it, as you're preaching against this sinful world and everything you see going on, how are you living in accordance with God's word? How are your works matching up to what you're crying out in others? People who understand salvation by grace should be humble people, right? And slow to bring charges against others. In verses 23 to 24, the main problem with this, friends, what Paul brings out, the main problem with all of this is that what they're doing when they don't practice what they preach and what they say they believe, when they live contrary to God's word, they're dishonoring God. 
Look at what he says, verse 23. You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, and here he's going to quote from Isaiah 52 and even a portion referenced in Ezekiel 36 because this was a common problem among the Jewish people. He quotes here, the name of God is blaspheme among the Gentiles because of you. And the whole context is this, that because of their sin, God had to cast them out among the nations. And as they went, yes, they might have taken their law, but, and they would teach against sin, but they themselves were living in it. And the watching world saw it in God's name. His very name was dishonored. What a powerful charge. Do you understand that sin itself is a dishonoring of God. And that's the main problem with it. The main problem with sin isn't that it, doesn't, that it hurts you or other people, it's that it dishonors God. This is why Paul says in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of what? The glory of God. You failed in your mission to bring glory to God through obeying Him. And when we sin, we dishonor God. And what He does here when He says to these Jews, you're boasting in the law, and you're boasting in God that you know Him, and you're boasting in the fact that you're a Jew, and yet through your behavior, you're bringing dishonor upon God. And He says back in chapter 1 that that was the very thing that the Gentiles were doing, verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God. In other words, he's like, Jews, you're no better off. You're on the same level. You're a God dishonorer through your sin. We see this happen all the time, friends, in the Christian church at large. It usually comes in the form of a prominent preacher-teacher whose name is well-known, not just in Christian circles, but in non-Christian circles. And all of a sudden, what comes about is there is some scandal that just erupts, that this man was living in unrepentant counter-sin, counter-righteousness from what God had commanded in the law, and they're exposed in the name of God is blasphemed. You ever been around non-Christians when news of like that breaks? And what do they say about Christians? Oh man, they're so hypocritical. What a joke it is. They tell us not to sin. Look at how they're living. Isn't that the importance of Christian integrity then? The word integrity means a state of being whole or undivided, that that's what we're pursuing as true believers. By the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit and knowledge of the Scriptures, we're going to pursue integrity. Public life, private life. In public and in secret. And the problem with all of us, friends, is we can live a divided life at times, right? Believing one thing and doing another, even in front of other people. And that's why repentance and confession of sin are such an important aspect of being a Christian, isn't it? That what we're even displaying is, yes, we're saying, yes, we still sin and we still fail, but we confess our sins. 
We are a repentant people. I love this. That's why, that's why confession of sin is embedded into the form of public worship. This is why we make a big deal about it, that we're in a time now of confessing that we are sinners. So if the world is watching, it isn't as though we're being hypocritical. If we fail in a particular area, or if we stumble and fall, like James says, we stumble in many ways, we're acknowledging this and immediately looking to Jesus. 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. That's a Romans 2 guy. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus' son cleanses us from all sin. Here again is a Romans 2 guy, verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. See, that's why we always have to be admitting that we sin, you see. And if somebody sees it and calls us out on it, you just own it. And then you say, thank God for Jesus. I'm not Jesus. I can't save myself. Jesus is saving me still from my sins and will save me completely. Friends, remember this as we bring this to a conclusion. You bear the name of God. By that I mean if you are a professing Christian, when you are around other people, as they look at you, they know you to be a person who worships God. Does your life, does your conversation around non-Christians bring him glory or dishonor? Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 28, when he baptized my disciples in the name, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit so that they are known by my name. And this is why Jesus will say, Matthew 5, said in Matthew 5, you're the light of the world. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Is that your life? Or is your life one of hypocrisy? Do you live around others differently than you do on Sunday mornings or around other Christians? Friends, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that's what makes the good news of Jesus such good news, isn't it? Here is the one in John 17, 4, at the end of his life, who could say, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Jesus is the only one, fully, truly, completely, every moment of his life could get to the end of his life then and say, I have fully glorified you, God. And he did that, friends, for our sake. He is the only one who is exempt from chapters 1, 2, and 3. And that's the good news of the gospel. He honored God fully and completely. He revealed the glory of God in all he did and said and thought and felt. And then on that fateful day, he went to the cross and bore the wrath and judgment of God for all our hypocrisy and God disglorifying actions and attitudes so that we can be forgiven by him 
and, as we'll learn next week, get a new heart by the Spirit that enables us then in our lives every day, not perfectly but progressively, to begin and continue glorifying Him in our lives. That's next week. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your truth. Your Word is truth. Sanctify us by it just as Jesus prayed. We thank You for Him in the Gospel. I pray now as we come to the Lord's table that you would help us to glory and revel in him. We ask this in his name. Amen.